Section 8 of The Theory of Moral Sentiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Meg Triton. The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith. Part 2, Section 1. Part 2 Of Merit and Demerit, or of the objects of reward and punishment consisting of three parts. Section 1. Of the sense of merit and demerit. Introduction. There is another set of qualities ascribed to the actions and conduct of mankind, distinct from their propriety or impropriety, their decency or ungracefulness, and which are the objects of a distinct species of approbation and disapprobation. These are merit and demerit the qualities of deserving reward and of deserving punishment. It has already been observed that the sentiment or affection of the heart from which any action proceeds, and upon which its whole virtue or vice depends, may be considered under two different aspects, or in two different relations. First, in relation to the cause or object which excites it, and secondly, in relation to the end which it proposes, or to the effect which it tends to produce that upon the suitableness or unsuitableness, upon the proportion or disproportion which the affection seems to bear to the cause or object which excites it, depends the propriety or impropriety, the decency or ungracefulness of the consequent action, and that upon the beneficial or hurtful effects which the affection proposes or tends to produce, depends the merit or demerit, the good or ill desert of the action to which it gives occasion. Wherein consists our sense of the propriety or impropriety of actions has been explained in the former part of this discourse. We come now to consider wherein consists that of their good or ill desert. Chapter 1. That whatever appears to be the proper object of gratitude appears to deserve reward, and that in the same manner whatever appears to be the proper object of resentment appears to deserve punishment. To us, therefore, that action must appear to deserve reward, which appears to be the proper and approved object of that sentiment which most immediately and directly prompts us to reward, or to do good to another. And in the same manner, that action must appear to deserve punishment, which appears to be the proper and approved object of that sentiment which most immediately and directly prompts us to punish, or to inflict evil upon another. The sentiment which most immediately and directly prompts us to reward is gratitude. That which most immediately and directly prompts us to punish is resentment. To us, therefore, that action must appear to deserve a reward which appears to be the proper and approved object of gratitude, as, on the other hand, that action must appear to deserve punishment which appears to be the proper and approved object of resentment. To reward is to recompense, to remunerate, to return good for good received. To punish, too, is to recompense, to remunerate, though in a different manner. It is to return evil for evil that has been done. There are some other passions, besides gratitude and resentment, which interest us in the happiness or misery of others. But there are none which so directly excite us to be the instruments of either. The love and esteem which grow upon acquaintance and habitual approbation necessarily lead us to be pleased with the good fortune of the man who is the object of such agreeable emotions, and, consequently, to be willing to lend a hand to promote it. 
Our love, however, is fully satisfied, though his good fortune should be brought about without our assistance. All that this passion desires is to see him happy, without regarding who was the author of his prosperity. But gratitude is not to be satisfied in this manner. If the person to whom we owe many obligations is made happy without our assistance, though it pleases our love, it does not content our gratitude. Till we have recompensed him, till we ourselves have been instrumental in promoting his happiness, we feel ourselves still loaded with that debt which his past services have laid upon us. The hatred and dislike, in the same manner, which grow upon habitual disapprobation, would often lead us to take a malicious pleasure in the misfortune of the man whose conduct and character excite so painful a passion. But though dislike and hatred harden us against all sympathy, and sometimes dispose us even to rejoice at the distress of another, yet, if there is no resentment in the case, if neither we nor our friends have received any great personal provocation, these passions would not naturally lead us to wish to be instrumental in bringing it about. Though we could fear no punishment in consequence of our having had some hand in it, we would rather that it should happen by some other means. To one under the dominion of violent hatred, it would be agreeable, perhaps, to hear that the person whom he abhorred and detested was killed by some accident. But if he had the least spark of justice, which, though this passion is not very favorable to virtue, he might still have, it would hurt him excessively to have been himself, even without design, the occasion of this misfortune. Much more would the very thought of voluntarily contributing to it shock him beyond all measure. He would reject with horror even the imagination of so execrable a design. And if he could imagine himself capable of such an enormity, he would begin to regard himself in the same odious light in which he had considered the person who was the object of his dislike. But it is quite otherwise with resentment. If the person who had done us some great injury, who had murdered our father or our brother, for example, should soon afterwards die of a fever, or even be brought to the scaffold upon account of some other crime, though it might soothe our hatred, it would not fully gratify our resentment. Resentment would prompt us to desire not only that he should be punished, but that he should be punished by our means, and upon account of that particular injury which he had done to us. Resentment cannot be fully gratified, unless the offender is not only made to grieve in his turn, but to grieve for that particular wrong which we have suffered from him. He must be made to repent and be sorry for this very action, that others, through fear of the like punishment, may be terrified from being guilty of the like offense. The natural gratification of this passion tends, of its own accord, to produce all the political ends of punishment, the correction of the criminal, and the example to the public. Gratitude and resentment, therefore, are the sentiments which most immediately and directly prompt to reward and to punish. To us, therefore, he must appear to deserve reward who appears to be the proper and approved object of gratitude, and he to deserve punishment who appears to be that of resentment. Chapter 2 Of the Proper Objects of Gratitude and Resentment to be the proper and approved object either of gratitude or resentment can mean nothing but to be the object of that gratitude and of that resentment which naturally seems proper and is approved of. 
But these, as well as all the other passions of human nature, seem proper and are approved of, when the heart of every impartial spectator entirely sympathizes with them, when every indifferent bystander entirely enters into and goes along with them. He, therefore, appears to deserve reward, who, to some person or persons, is the natural object of a gratitude which every human heart is disposed to beat time to, and thereby applaud. And he, on the other hand, appears to deserve punishment, who in the same manner is to some person or persons the natural object of a resentment, which the breast of every reasonable man is ready to adopt and sympathize with. To us, surely, that action must appear to deserve reward, which everybody who knows of it would wish to reward, and thereby delights to see rewarded. And that action must as surely appear to deserve punishment, which everybody who hears of it is angry with, and upon that account rejoices to see punished. As we sympathize with the joy of our companions when in prosperity, so we join with them in the complacency and satisfaction with which they naturally regard whatever is the cause of their good fortune. We enter into the love and affection which they conceive for it, and begin to love it too. We should be sorry for their sakes if it was destroyed, or even if it was placed at too great a distance from them, and out of the reach of their care and protection, though they should lose nothing by its absence except the pleasure of seeing it. If it is man who has thus been the fortunate instrument of the happiness of his brethren, this is still more peculiarly the case. When we see one man assisted, protected, relieved by another, our sympathy with the joy of the person who receives the benefit serves only to animate our fellow-feeling with his gratitude towards him who bestows it. When we look upon the person who is the cause of his pleasure, with the eyes with which we imagine he must look upon him, his benefactor seems to stand before us in the most engaging and amiable light. We readily, therefore, sympathize with the grateful affection which he conceives for a person to whom he has been so much obliged, and consequently applaud the returns which he is disposed to make for the good offices conferred upon him. As we entirely enter into the affection from which these returns proceed, they necessarily seem every way proper and suitable to their object. In the same manner, as we sympathize with the sorrow of our fellow-creature whenever we see his distress, so we likewise enter into his abhorrence and aversion for whatever has given occasion to it. Our heart, as it adopts and beats time to his grief, so is it likewise animated with that spirit by which he endeavors to drive away or destroy the cause of it. The indolent and passive fellow-feeling by which we accompany him in his sufferings readily gives way to that more vigorous and active sentiment by which we go along with him in the effort he makes either to repel them or to gratify his aversion to what has given occasion to them. This is still more peculiarly the case when it is a man who has caused them. When we see one man oppressed or injured by another, the sympathy which we feel with the distress of the sufferer seems to serve only to animate our fellow-feeling with his resentment against the offender. We are rejoiced to see him attack his adversary in his turn, and are eager and ready to assist him whenever he exerts himself for defense, or even for vengeance, within a certain degree. If the injured should perish in the quarrel, we not only sympathize with the real resentment of his friends and relations, but with the imaginary resentment which in fancy we lend to the dead, who is no longer capable of feeling that or any other human sentiment. 
but as we put ourselves in his situation, as we enter, as it were, into his body, and in our imaginations, in some measure, animate anew the deformed and mangled carcass of the slain, when we bring home in this manner his case to our own bosoms, we feel upon this, as upon many other occasions, an emotion which the person principally concerned is incapable of feeling, and which yet we feel by an elusive sympathy with him. The sympathetic tears which we shed for that immense and irretrievable loss, which in our fancy he appears to have sustained, seem to be but a small part of the duty which we owe him. The injury which he has suffered demands, we think, a principal part of our attention. We feel that resentment which we imagine he ought to feel, and which he would feel, if in his cold and lifeless body there remained any consciousness of what passed upon earth. His blood, we think, calls aloud for vengeance. The very ashes of the dead seem to be disturbed at the thought that his injuries are to pass unrevenged. The horrors which are supposed to haunt the bed of the murderer, the ghosts which superstition imagines, rise from their graves to demand vengeance upon those who brought them to an untimely end, all take their origin from this natural sympathy with the imaginary resentment of the slain. And with regard, at least, to this most dreadful of all crimes, nature antecedent to all reflections upon the utility of punishment, has in this manner stamped upon the human heart in the strongest and most indelible characters an immediate and instinctive approbation of the sacred and necessary law of retaliation. CHAPTER three, That where there is no approbation of the conduct of the person who confers the benefit, there is little sympathy with the gratitude of him who receives it and that, on the contrary, where there is no disapprobation of the motives of the person who does the mischief, there is no sort of sympathy with the resentment of him who suffers it. It is to be observed, however, that how beneficial soever on the one hand, or how hurtful soever on the other, the actions or intentions of the person who acts may have been to the person who is, if I may say so, acted upon, yet if in the one case there appears to have been no propriety in the motives of the agent, if we cannot enter into the infections which influenced his conduct, we have little sympathy with the gratitude of the person who receives the benefit. Or if, in the other case, there appears to have been no impropriety in the motives of the agent, if, on the contrary, the affections which influenced his conduct are such as we must necessarily enter into, we can have no sort of sympathy with the resentment of the person who suffers. Little gratitude seems due in the one case, and all sort of resentment seems unjust in the other. The one action seems to merit little reward, the other to deserve no punishment. First, I say, that wherever we cannot sympathize with the affections of the agent, wherever there seems to be no propriety in the motives which influenced his conduct, we are less disposed to enter into the gratitude of the person who received the benefit of his actions. A very small return seems due to that foolish and profuse generosity which confers the greatest benefits from the most trivial motives, and gives an estate to a man merely because his name and surname happen to be the same with those of the giver. Such services do not seem to demand any proportionable recompense. Our contempt for the folly of the agent hinders us from thoroughly entering into the gratitude of the person to whom the good office has been done. His benefactor seems unworthy of it. As when we place ourselves in the situation of the person obliged, we feel that we could conceive no great reverence for such a benefactor, we easily absolve him from a great deal of that submissive veneration and esteem which we should think due to a more respectable character. And provided he always treats his weak friend with kindness and humanity, 
we are willing to excuse him from many attentions and regards which we should demand to a worthier patron those princes who have heaped with the greatest profusion wealth power and honors upon their favorites have seldom excited that degree of attachment to their persons which has often been experienced by those who were more frugal of their favors the well-natured but injudicious prodigality of james i of great britain seems to have attached nobody to his person and that prince notwithstanding his social and harmless disposition appears to have lived and died without a friend the whole gentry and nobility of england exposed their lives and fortunes in the cause of his more frugal and distinguishing son notwithstanding the coldness and distant severity of his ordinary deportment secondly i say that whenever the conduct of the agent appears to have been entirely directed by motives and affections which we thoroughly enter into and approve of we can have no sort of sympathy with the resentment of the sufferer how great soever the mischief which may have been done to him when two people quarrel if we take part with and entirely adopt the resentment of one of them it is impossible that we should enter into that of the other our sympathy with the person whose motives we go along with and whom therefore we look upon as in the right cannot but harden us against all fellow-feeling with the other whom we necessarily regard as in the wrong whatever this last therefore may have suffered while it is no more than what we ourselves should have wished him to suffer while it is no more than what our own sympathetic indignation would have prompted us to inflict upon him it cannot either displease or provoke us when an inhuman murderer is brought to the scaffold though we have some compassion for his misery we can have no sort of fellow-feeling with his resentment if he should be so absurd as to express any against either his prosecutor or his judge the natural tendency of their just indignation against so vile a criminal is indeed the most fatal and ruinous to him but it is impossible that we should be displeased with the tendency of a sentiment which when we bring the case home to ourselves we feel that we cannot avoid adopting chapter four recapitulation of the foregoing chapters we do not therefore thoroughly and heartily sympathize with the gratitude of one man towards another merely because this other has been the cause of his good fortune unless he has been the cause of it from motives which we entirely go along with our heart must adopt the principles of the agent and go along with all the affections which influenced his conduct before it can entirely sympathize with and beat time to the gratitude of the person who has been benefited by his actions if in the conduct of the benefactor there appears to have been no propriety how beneficial soever its effects it does not seem to demand or necessarily to require any proportionable recompense but when to the beneficent tendency of the action is joined the propriety of the affection from which it proceeds when we entirely sympathize and go along with the motives of the agent the love which we conceive for him upon his own account enhances and enlivens our fellow-feeling with the gratitude of those who owe their prosperity to his good conduct his actions seem then to demand and if i may say so to call aloud for a proportionable recompense we then entirely enter into that gratitude which prompts to bestow it the benefactor seems then to be the proper object of reward when we thus entirely sympathize with and approve of that sentiment which prompts to reward him when we approve of and go along with the affection from which the action proceeds we must necessarily approve of the action and regard the person towards whom it is directed as its proper and suitable object 
In the same manner, we cannot at all sympathize with the resentment of one man against another, merely because this other has been the cause of his misfortune, unless he has been the cause of it from motives which we cannot enter into. Before we can adopt the resentment of the sufferer, we must disapprove of the motives of the agent, and feel that our heart renounces all sympathy with the affections which influenced his conduct. If there appears to have been no impropriety in these, how fatal soever the tendency of the action which proceeds from them to those against whom it is directed, it does not seem to deserve any punishment, or to be the proper object of any resentment. But when to the hurtfulness of the action is joined the impropriety of the affection from whence it proceeds, when our heart rejects with abhorrence all fellow-feeling with the motives of the agent, we then heartily and entirely sympathize with the resentment of the sufferer. Such actions seem then to deserve, and, if I may say so, to call aloud for, a proportionable punishment, and we entirely enter into, and thereby approve of, that resentment which prompts to inflict it. The offender necessarily seems then to be the proper object of punishment, when we thus entirely sympathize with, and thereby approve of, that sentiment which prompts to punish. In this case, too, when we approve, and go along with, the affection from which the action proceeds, we must necessarily approve of the action, and regard the person against whom it is directed, as its proper and suitable object. CHAPTER V THE ANALYSIS OF THE SENSE OF MERIT AND DEMERIT as our sense, therefore, of the propriety of conduct arises from what I shall call a direct sympathy with the affections and motives of the person who acts, so our sense of its merit arises from what I shall call an indirect sympathy with the gratitude of the person who is, if I may say so, acted upon. As we cannot indeed enter thoroughly into the gratitude of the person who receives the benefit, unless we beforehand approve of the motives of the benefactor, so, upon this account, the sense of merit seems to be a compounded sentiment, and to be made up of two distinct emotions, a direct sympathy with the sentiments of the agent, and an indirect sympathy with the gratitude of those who receive the benefit of his actions. We may, upon many different occasions, plainly distinguish those two different emotions, combining and uniting together, in our sense of the good desert of a particular character or action. When we read in history concerning actions of proper and beneficent greatness of mind, how eagerly do we enter into such designs? How much are we animated by that high-spirited generosity which directs them? How keen are we for their success? How grieved at their disappointment? In imagination we become the very person whose actions are represented to us. We transport ourselves in fancy to the scenes of those distant and forgotten adventures, and imagine ourselves acting the part of a Scipio or a Camillus, a Timoleon or an Aristides. So far our sentiments are founded upon the direct sympathy with the person who acts. Nor is the indirect sympathy with those who receive the benefit of such actions less sensibly felt. Whenever we place ourselves in the situation of these last, with what warm and affectionate fellow-feeling do we enter into their gratitude towards those who served them so essentially? We embrace, as it were, their benefactor along with them. Our heart readily sympathizes with the highest transports of their grateful affection. No honors, no rewards, we think, can be too great for them to bestow upon him. When they make this proper return for his services, we heartily applaud go along with them but are shocked beyond all measure if by their conduct they appear to have little sense of the obligations conferred upon them. 
our whole sense in short of the merit and good desert of such actions of the propriety and fitness of recompensing them and making the person who performed them rejoice in his turn arises from the sympathetic emotions of gratitude and love with which when we bring home to our own breast the situation of those principally concerned we feel ourselves naturally transported towards the man who could act with such proper and noble beneficence in the same manner as our sense of the impropriety of conduct arises from a want of sympathy or from a direct antipathy to the affections and motives of the agent so our sense of its demerit arises from what i shall hereto call an indirect sympathy with the resentment of the sufferer as we cannot indeed enter into the resentment of the sufferer unless our heart beforehand disapproves the motives of the agent and renounces all fellow-feeling with them so upon this account the sense of demerit as well as that of merit seems to be a compounded sentiment and to be made up of two distinct emotions a direct antipathy to the sentiments of the agent and an indirect sympathy with the resentment of the sufferer we may here too upon many different occasions plainly distinguish those two different emotions combining and uniting together in our sense of the ill desert of a particular character or action when we read in history concerning the perfidy and cruelty of a borgia or a nero our heart rises up against the detestable sentiments which influence their conduct and renounces with horror and abomination all fellow-feeling with such execrable motives so far our sentiments are founded upon the direct antipathy to the affections of the agent and the indirect sympathy with the resentment of the sufferers is still more sensibly felt when we bring home to ourselves the situation of the persons whom these scourges of mankind insulted murdered or betrayed what indignation do we not feel against such insolent and inhuman oppressors of the earth our sympathy with the unavoidable distress of the innocent sufferers is not more real nor more lively than our fellow-feeling with their just and natural resentment the former sentiment only heightens the latter and the idea of their distress serves only to inflame and blow up our animosity against those who occasioned it when we think of the anguish of the sufferers we take part with them more earnestly against their oppressors we enter with more eagerness into all their schemes of vengeance and feel ourselves every moment wreaking in imagination upon such violators of the laws of society that punishment which our sympathetic indignation tells us is due to their crimes our sense of the horror and dreadful atrocity of such conduct the delight which we take in hearing that it was properly punished the indignation which we feel when it escapes this due retaliation our whole sense and feeling in short of its ill desert of the propriety and fitness of inflicting evil upon the person who is guilty of it and of making him grieve in his turn arises from the sympathetic indignation which naturally boils up in the breast of the spectator whenever he thoroughly brings home to himself the case of the sufferer End of section 8